So I've said this for three Sundays. This is the third time I've said this. We're at the turning point in the ministry of Jesus Christ. We're going from acceptance to opposition. And the main opposition is going to surface in this chapter and in our passage today. <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, the opposition has been building from the religious leaders, and they're not really sure whether this particular rendering of what we call the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is the first time or not. But we do believe from Matthew chapter 9 that the undertones have begun to surface even back as far... We're parallel passage here is Matthew 12. Even as early as Matthew 9, there were some undertones of what the religious people of that uh, community were going to begin to say about the power of Jesus Christ. In that, they're going to begin to say that he's healing not in the power of the Holy Spirit, but he's healing in the power of Satan. And that marks the turning point, especially for Israel. He's going to pronounce at the end of this passage today, he's going to pronounce a judgment on Israel that is really very sad. Uh, after this point in Jesus's ministry, you will notice he's going to employ more and more parables. And the purpose of the parable, you know, parabole is the word, para alongside bole to cast. Something cast alongside for comparison. And when we do a parable, we do it to illustrate or to explain. But when Jesus did a parable, as he taught his, his own disciples, I'm doing it, he said, to hide. It hides God's truth from people who don't want to hear it. And yet people who do want to hear it will, will seek it and the Holy Spirit will explain it to them. So whereas we do it to explain, he's going to speak in parables to couch the truth of God's word from those who would use it against him. Sometimes, you know, in life as new Christians, we at least I we did with our little crowd of nine ministers and their wives as we first got started in seminary together, we would talk about, is it possible to go too far? You're a Christian, is it possible to go too far? You're a non-Christian, is it possible to go so far away from God that you can't get back? Can I run so far? Can I resist so long that I lose my opportunity to come to Christ? And this passage will answer that. And the answer is yes, there is a bridge too far for the unbeliever. We can go so far away that God won't let us come back. Now, I want to show you. Do I have it up there? Yeah, good. good. I want to show you. This is from Matthew. Now, the parallel passage of this is in Matthew. Matthew adds a little more detail. Matthew was there. I'll get into it a little bit later if I'm not smart enough to remember I'm into it now. But Matthew's writing to a different audience than Luke. Uh, and you have to understand that. Matthew's audience was intentionally set for the Jews. So he'll include things that Jesus said to Jews that don't necessarily apply to Gentiles. Uh, Wherefore I say unto you that all manner of sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven unto men, but blasphemy against the Holy Ghost shall not be forgiven unto men. Now you think, well... That means I can blaspheme Jesus' name, but I can't blaspheme the Holy Ghost. No, it doesn't mean that. It means that you cannot attribute the power and work and coming of Jesus Christ to Satan. That's the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. We can go so far away that God won't let us come back. It all begins with healing, as many of, many of his experiences and arguments did. He was casting out a devil, and it was dumb. And it had came to pass. Now, you know dumb means he couldn't speak. And it came to pass that when the devil was gone out, the dumb spake, and the people wondered. The word wondered there is amazed. The people were amazed. They were astonished. All right. From their perspective, you have to understand this is an impossible miracle. 
the whole crowd gasped with amazement. Now Matthew will tell us a little bit more about this fellow. Exact same words, except he'll add the word blind. Then was brought to him one possessed with a devil, blind and dumb. And he healed him, insomuch that the blind and dumb both spake and saw. And you think, well, is there a contradiction here? Of course not. You know, you, you, two people see one accident and uh, they describe it in different words. For most, for Matthew, who was there, the, it was very significant that the guy was blind as well as unable to speak. But for Luke, who heard this from others, he wasn't there. He was a Gentile operating as a physician uh, far away from these events when they occurred. The significant part for him was the guy was unable to speak. It seems to me as I read both of these passages, Matthew and the Luke passages, someone had attempted to present Jesus with a hopeless case. I would love to know just who brought this fellow to Christ, you know, and then was brought to him one. They don't tell you who brought him. Was it his parents? There's a different message in whether it's his parents. Was it his trusted friends? Or was it his enemies that did this? Was this a setup by the Pharisees? We don't know. We don't, I, w- I would not be surprised to learn this was a direct attempt by the Pharisees to make Jesus look like a fool, unaware of the fact of who they were dealing with. You know, it might be easy to make me look like a fool. It'd be a lot tougher to make the king of the universe look like a fool. I think their goal was to prove that Jesus was a false prophet, that he was a fake, that he was a fraud. And they were looking for a reason to kill him. They were already talking about finding some reason to kill him. Now you have to understand that the Jews cast out demons themselves. They had priests that were exorcists. And they would go around and they would cast out demons. But they understood certain things about demon casting out. Of course, we don't know anything about it. Uh, we actually, in our sophistication, choose to not believe in the whole demon world, which is sad. But they believed in demons, and they, they actually would cast out demons, but they believed in order to do an exorcism, the first thing you had to do with a possessed person is you have to engage the demon in a conversation, and you have to get the demon to, to admit his name. So in Jesus' day, when they would do an exorcist, they would seek to get the, the, the demonized person out of the way and speak directly to the demon and get the demon to, to actually state his name so that then in the power of God they could call this demon out by name. If, however, that victim was the, also a victim of the inability to speak, to the Jews it was an absolutely hopeless case. This guy could not only not speak, and the demon could not give him his name, but he couldn't even see all the, uh, whatever the Pharisees did in their observance of an exorcism, whether it's shaking holy water or, or burning a candle. He couldn't, he couldn't see what was going on around him. This guy was, in, in the Pharisees' mind, in the Jewish mind, this was an impossibility to heal this man. Well, I hate to say it, it's an impossibility to me too. If a man is born blind and sitting in this church, I would have no faith to believe that I could pray and heal him. But Jesus could do it with one word. And what's impossible for us is certainly not impossible for Jesus Christ. Jesus handled this particular person with ease. And the people were astonished. All the people were amazed. Now look what they said. Is not this the son of David? In other words, is not this the Messiah? 
All their lives they've heard that when Messiah comes, he'll be able to do these kind of things. All their lives they've heard that this situation where Jesus healed this guy is an impossible situation that only God could do this, that, that it would have to be the hand of God. And when they see the hand of God do, they ask the question, is not this the son of David, the promised son of David, the Messiah? Is this not the Christ? Now, you know, if you were a Pharisee and you did set this up, and I don't know, but if you did set this up, it must have really grated on your nerves to see this happen. Now, in addition to that, some of them said, which doesn't... Oh, I'm sorry, I'm skipping ahead. This is the actual uh, accusation. Some in the crowd said, some of them said, he casteth out devils through Beelzebub, the chief of the devil. Now, in the Greek, it's Beelzebul, B-O-L. Uh, the, the etymology of the word is unknown. Now, these are what they think the word means, and they're not sure. And one of the commentators I was reading, I think it was Jameson Fawcett Brown, and I think they were quoting someone else, said, whatever the root, the, the history, the etymology means the, the historical development of this word, whatever the historical root of this word is, way too much time is spent trying to figure it out then the word is worth even bothering with. So really, I don't want to waste much of your time with it. It really doesn't matter what this word means. They used it to mean the devil, all right? But the etymology of the world is un a word is unknown. It could mean lord of the dwelling. It could mean master of the house. It could mean lord of the flies. That's interesting. Lord of dung, which would certainly be a uh, offensive title for Jesus, and it could be Lord of idolatrous sacrifices. Certainly a term of reproach. Now, obviously, a significant miracle has occurred. They've never seen anything like this in their lives. Now, if the Pharisees didn't say something soon to counteract what Jesus was doing in front of the crowds, they knew it wouldn't be long before they're going to hail, them, hail Him as their King, not only their Messiah, which the crowd is already doing. Is not this the Messiah? They're going to hail them as their king, and the Pharisees are going to be out of work. They're, they're not worried about whether the, the, the long-promised Messiah has come. They didn't even believe there was a long-promised Messiah coming. What they were interested in was keeping their jobs. God, deliver us from people like me that hold on to their job over what they see God doing in their lives. It's very important that we see what God is doing and go with that and not with what we're trying to hold on to. So instead of accepting what they're seeing with their own eyes, whether they set it up or not, I don't know. But instead of that, they charged Jesus with healing this man in the power of Satan. They're accusing him of being in league with Satan. They're saying he's a demon, or he's demon-possessed, or he's demon-empowered. And this is, as I understand it, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Now, the next verse doesn't seem to fit. It's almost as if the crowd didn't connect. Maybe they didn't hear what the Pharisees were saying. And it says, and others were tempting him, testing him, challenging him, sought of him a sign from heaven. I almost think, are they kidding? I. I don't know about you, but if I were Jesus, I, I think the sign I'd give them was the sign of Korah's rebellion in the Old Testament, where the ground opened up under him and swallowed him alive into the fires of hell. 
Uh, so it's probably a good thing that God didn't give me that preaching job. Because if I were Jesus, I'm telling you, He had just done an impossible miracle. Lord, would you show us a sign? You know, uh, another time they did that, He had just done a miracle and they wanted to see a sign. And they even suggested what the sign might be. Maybe you could do the fish and chips that they keep talking about back up there in Galilee. You know, maybe that's what they wanted. I don't know. But when somebody comes in and does a significant miracle, it seems offensive to me to say, we'd like you to do a sign to prove you're allowed to do these things. Huh? What? I don't understand this. Uh, isn't the healing of the blind and speechless man a sign? I think it is. You know, Perhaps they want to see him walk on water. I don't know. But I would get angry. But notice Jesus does not get angry. Jesus, in fact, will carefully answer every one of their objections. And he'll do it in a calm manner that I'm not capable of doing. But the, the, his answers are interesting. But he, knowing their thoughts, said unto them, Every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation, and a house divided against a house faileth or falleth. If Satan also be divided against himself, how shall his kingdom stand? Because ye say that I cast out devils through Beelzebub. It's ridiculous, Jesus said, to think that, I, that the devil would tear down his own kingdom deliberately. No house can stand if it's so divided from within. There's a whole message in that. Unrelated to our passage today, there's an entire message in that. There's a, it's interesting how this applies to the United States today, that a house divided cannot stand. It's interesting to see what he's affirming in this. And I, I will just mention a few of them, unrelated to the passage, but truths that are universal. Uh, but what an absurdity to charge Jesus with operating in the power of Satan as he seeks about to destroy the works of Satan. Now, notice in the process of this, unrelated to the passage for them, because they didn't doubt the existence of Satan, but we live in a world that says there is no Satan, there is no evil. They'll, you will hear it every day on the radio that people believe, people believe that children are born basically good and that there is no fall in nature and that men around the world are all basically good. And yet the Bible declares there is none good, no, not one. I remember my uncle saying, oh, Bobby, I've lived a good life. I, you know, I was faithful to my wife. I worked my job. I raised my children. I paid my bills. I've lived a good life. Yes, you have by human standards, uncle. But the Bible says there is none good in the sense of having kept the law good enough to walk into God's presence. There is no good. No, not one. Now, notice the reality that Jesus points out here. He affirms the reality that Satan exists here. People say there is no evil. There is no Satan. Well, Jesus thought there was. You know, you might, you might argue against your philosophy that there is no evil in the world, but you'd be hard to prove it by history, and you'd never prove it by Scripture. You'd never be able to. Notice also that Satan has a kingdom. And notice, too, that this kingdom is at war with God. Now, as a, as a, a long-term Christian, you understand that, and you believe this, but the world doesn't. So in the process of this, this whole experience, Jesus is affirming things that right now in our world, Christ, Christian so-called preachers are denying in pulpits all across America. 
In this, he will also, we're not going to get that far today, but he'll also speak of Jonah, and he'll also speak of the Queen of Sheba. These are stories that the world rejects, but Jesus will affirm them. And anything you're having trouble with that you're having trouble believing, go back and see what Jesus said about it. See, I I didn't believe this stuff either when I was lost. I didn't believe it as soon as I was saved. But when I called on Jesus to save me, and my life radically changed, and the Holy Spirit came into my life and began to break the chains of slavery that I had, it wasn't so much about whether I believed Jonah was inside a fish or not. I believed that Jesus changed my life and that He was the Son of God. So if I believe Jesus believed in Jonah, then I believe in Jonah. It wasn't based on my logic. It was based on the fact that Jesus said it. So if you doubt whether Satan and his minions and his kingdom are real, understand Jesus here is establishing the fact that Satan is a reality and an adversary of God. This reality is true. Interestingly enough, it's also true for families. You cannot have a family that's divided. This is why the the saved and the unsaved cannot marry. You've got one family member working for Jesus and one family member working for Satan. You can't do that. You know, my uncle who said he'd lived a good life, yes, he lived a good life, but he lived it in self-pride, and self-pride is the flaw of Satan. Even though in our definition, he's a good man, it doesn't work for a saved person to be married to him. They're out of two different worlds. The same is true for cities and nations. And we're in a situation in our country now where... I don't want to say one side's godly and the other side's ungodly, but we're definitely divided. We seem to be divided over everything. I don't, I don't know without something drastic happening what's ever going to bring us back together again. I really don't. If a parent gives in and says, go ahead, I don't care, and the other parent is trying to hold the child to some level of discipline, it becomes a broken nature in which it's almost impossible to raise that child, that double standard. And that kid knows how to play that game. That kid isn't very old before he figures out that dad's a pushover and mom's tougher. So I know who I'll ask, you know. If a family is divided in purpose or discipline or finances, that family is divided. And a divided family is doomed to fail. It's tearing itself apart from within. So even though it has very little to do with our passage today, understand it's vital that we work together as a church family, together as a city, together as individual families, husbands and wives, find common ground and work together, work on that. There are some things we may never agree on, but find common ground and work together on that. Well, enough of that. What happens if a Christian voter says, I don't care? You know, when I first became a Christian, I would always vote in the presidential elections because I thought it was important, because my mother thought it was important. My mother never knew Bernie Sanders, but if she had, she'd have voted for him. Um, So I was like Bob Schwartz. I would vote just to cancel out her vote in the presidential election. Uh, She'd vote for Walter Mondale, and I'd vote for Richard Nixon. But it didn't matter to me. Really, I didn't see the importance of it. But what happens if we all stay home? Think about it. So all of us who know the truth, who know the Lord, who know right from wrong, you can't blame the other side for being stupid and not knowing right from wrong. They're living in darkness. The same darkness we lived in. I didn't know any better. I mean, I knew it was wrong, but I didn't know any better. I thought it was cool. 
The more sin I could get involved in, the better. I didn't think it was causing any problem. I didn't realize it would destroy a whole society. I didn't realize that the things I was doing was encouraging others to do it. And as more and more of us do it, the more we tear down the country that we live in. I didn't realize that my generation would wreck the United States of America, but we did. We wrecked it. It was our own stupidity. I didn't understand that. But then I got saved and I began to understand it. But what happens if all of us who understand it stay home and don't vote? What happens? Who's running the country? The unsaved bobs of America. And believe me, I know how I was. You don't want me running this country. You know, if you think Uncle Joe is bad, you ought to see how I'd do back when I was lost. It would be evil. If we're too tired or too discouraged or too weak to resist evil in our communities and our countries, then evil wins. Understand this is a war. This is a war. And if I by Beelzebub cast out devils, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they shall be your judges. You cast out demons too. What power are you using? But if I with the finger of God cast out devils, no doubt the kingdom of God has come upon you. Make up your mind is the point. You, you know, you can't say your, your, your priests are out there casting out devils by the power of God, but I'm doing it by the power of Satan. Make a decision here, Pharisees. Please, pick a side. Make up your mind. Do your own exercise, exorcist work by the power of Satan too? If your answer is no, then you have to understand that God is standing in front of you. The kingdom of God has been right standing in front of you. The kingdom of God is present right here, right now. How close could he get to saying, I am God? Well, he goes into this little warfare thing that I could easily get in a sidetrack on. Verse 21. When a strong man armed keepeth his palace, his goods are in peace. It's nothing to do with this sermon, but it's a good verse for your gun cabinet. All right, Put that on the door of your gun cabinet. When a strong man armed keepeth his palace, his goods are in peace. Now you recognize this. The strong man armed in this parable is Satan. The arms are all the things he does to entrap us in sin. It's all the weapons he uses to keep us enslaved in sin, whether it's our drug addictions or our alcohol or our habits or all the things that we don't even dare talk about in public because they're too offensive. But they're the things that hold us chained and as long as he guards his palace right that's the parable as long as satan guards his palace we're the palace his goods my soul is safe in his care the metaphor of a castle well-armed keeping the peace is a basic truth and even though it doesn't apply to the second amendment i see where the second amendment came from but in this case, Satan is a strong man, the victim, the demon-possessed person is the castle. And it's the evil trappings of Satan that enslave him in sin. This guy can't see and he can't speak. He's doomed to darkness and silence. Perfect fodder for Satan. I don't know if you ever went to bars when you were younger, but there was a time I wasn't saved. There's nobody in those bars struggling with sin, let me tell you. They're not fighting over it. They're not feeling beaten. They're just asleep. That's Satan's goal for the lost world. 
Keep them enslaved so they don't realize they're slaves. Hold them down so they don't try to stand up. I remember the last beer I drank in a bar. I got halfway through it. I was a brand new Christian 50 years ago now. And I sat, it was a draft, and I set it down on the counter, and I looked to my right and I looked to my left. These were my quote unquote brothers. And I realized I could have fallen over backwards dead, and they wouldn't even, I'd have just been an obstacle in their way getting to the men's room. They couldn't care about me at all. They're so absorbed and absorbed in their own sin. They couldn't see themselves. They certainly couldn't see me. I left that half drank beer down, got in my truck, and I came home and I quit. That's a chain I didn't need in my life. There was a lot of other things I needed to quit. That was certainly the easiest one I quit. Peace in this metaphor is the blind ignorance of the doomed. Eyes closed, heads firmly set in the sand, or in a bottle, or in a TV, even in a sailboat. Unaware of the doom that awaits him, he's lost and hopeless, blind and mute, a slave to sin. What a picture. I'll tell you, Satan does not want to rock their boat. You can be sure. And that's Jesus' point. He doesn't want to rock their boat. He wants to keep himself absorbed until they slip into eternity, lost and hopeless forever. Well, in this metaphor, when a stronger than he shall come, that's Jesus, all right, stronger than the strong man, all right, you know, there's a book written between Jesus and Satan. There's no comparison. Jesus is the creator God of the universe. By Him, all things were created. And apart from Him was nothing made that was made, John tells us. That means Jesus created Satan. The Mormons want you to believe that Jesus and Satan are brothers. And that they argued over the plan of salvation. That's the most absurd thing I've ever heard in my life. Their theology is absurd. Absurd. Uh, Jesus is the creator of Satan. And at any point, he could wipe him off the face of the earth with just one word. And he's going to prove that. Revelation chapter 19, he's going to prove it. All right. But Jesus is the stronger than he that shall come and take him. And overcome him. He taketh from him all his armor, wherein he trusted. The addictions that held me to Satan the habits that I couldn't break, the strength that I didn't have, he broke all those problems in my life and he did it with a snap of a finger without any effort at all. I said to him, Lord Jesus, if this is true and you died to save me from my sin, please come into my life and save me. And he came in and my life was different from that point forward. All those things that entrapped me in sin, all the things that I did that I can't speak of, and the, the little things that I did that I talk of because you can say I'm in polite company. Uh, gone in an instant. In this case, the stronger man is Jesus who's come in to clean out my filthy home, my soul. When Jesus comes into our lives, he overcomes the enemy and takes all his armor. He breaks down every stronghold that held us captive all those years. That we walked with Satan. In my case 25 years. Our addictions. Our evil desires. Our habits. All those weaknesses that held us in chains. The stronger one breaks our slavery to Satan. Jesus said it himself. 
If the Son shall set you free, you shall be free indeed. Now we can still sin, and unfortunately we still do. But we don't have to anymore. We can say no. We still hear that old siren call in the background. Boy, I wish I could do this. I remember when I was first saved, when I was first saved, I used to feel like I was being punished by God because I couldn't do anything that was fun. There's nothing fun anymore. If you were an adult when you got saved, you know what I'm talking about because everything you did for fun was a sin. And then you get saved and you can't do it. And all your friends are lost. You can't hang around them. They'll just drag you down. You're just sitting at home thinking there's nothing left to do. There's nothing left to do. He breaks every one of those chains. So that echo of our past comes along and says, why don't you this or why don't you that? And you think, maybe I should. And sometimes you do. And then you feel terrible. And when you feel terrible, you know that's not who you are anymore. So yeah, I could go back out and start drinking again. All I would get is a headache and feel terrible. And that proves you're not the person you used to be. Our slavery to sin is over. All that noise in our head is from the past. It's nothing but echoes. It's a ghost calling to you from the distant past. Jesus has rendered our enemy a toothless adversary. He might use the same tricks to get us to sin as they used to work for us when we were lost, but we're no longer subject to His desires. Don't let Him trick you into thinking you are subject to Him. He can't hurt you. And the longer you resist Him, the more absurd He becomes. He always, this is my wife talking, He always overplays His hand. So you just wait. And if you wait long enough, you'll realize. You know, first it'll be, well, you're worthless. You're stupid. Why are you doing this? you got no business saying this. Uh, and on and on and on it goes. It echoes from your past until finally it gets to a point he says, wait, you ought to just kill yourself. Jump off this cliff. Run, drive into this tree. Do this, do that. And you realize, that's probably not the Holy Spirit, is it? Overplays his hand every time. <laughs> I don't want to be political, but if you saw the last presidential sp speech, I think he overplayed his hand there. Romans 6.22, But now being made free, for free from sin, Paul writes, we have become the servants to God, and we have as our fruit unto holiness, and in the end, everlasting life. Understand, there are two sides to this battle. He that is not with me, Jesus said, is against me. And he that gathereth not with me, scattereth abroad, he says in, in Matthew. We need to pick a side. And we need to get on it. That's the point. If we're on Jesus' side, we should start gathering. And for goodness sakes, we should stop scattering. We should find ways to gather people into the kingdom. You remember James and John when they wanted to call fire down on those Samaritans? When the Samaritans wouldn't let Jesus spend the night there? Jesus said, you don't know what spirit you are of. That's a new Christian. We don't know what spirit we're of. It's difficult to tell. You know... But the godly reaction is not Newcomb. Jesus said, we'll just find another place to stay. It's true for us too. We need to pick a side and realize what side we're on. Then Jesus makes this interesting little, this little uh, conclusion to what happens when you're delivered from Satan. Now, in our case, I don't think I was demon-possessed. Honestly, I don't think I needed to be delivered of a demon. Although, I've been around some people that disagreed with that. Uh, 
But I believe the application applies to anybody who was lost. When the unclean spirit is gone out of a man, he walketh through dry places seeking rest and doesn't find any. Now there's an awful lot there about demons that are different from Satan that we could go into a whole study on, but we're not going to. But whatever this demon is, he doesn't want to be outside of a body. He wants to be inhabiting someone. He couldn't find any place to rest. So he says, well, you know, there's nothing out here for me. I'll go back to my old house. I'll go back and see how Bob's doing. And when he cometh, he finds it swept and garnished. Now this picture is a person who's cleaned up their own lives and their own strength and done it themselves. Pictures on Uncle Paul. Pictures anyone who picked himself up by his own bootstraps and got religious, cleaned up his life, but didn't accept Christ. Now he, he left because he got kicked out. So he gets some friends to go with him. Then go with he and take them seven other spirits more wicked than himself. And the last state of that man is worse than the first. Now, you know, listening to Chuck Messer when he talks about this, he's, it's remarkable the number of friends I've had. I'm speaking as Chuck Messer right now. Chuck says, it's amazing how many friends I've had that have, have gone carefully gone through the, the Bible with me and heard the gospel and rejected it. And they said they can't believe it. It's just fairy tales. It's just stupid. I can't believe that, that whosoever call on the name of the Lord will be saved stuff. It's just <clears throat> too mystical. And he said it's interesting to go back five or ten years later and see what they're into and the stuff they believe now. And they're into all types of isms and wasms and stuff. And they're going, oh yeah, you should try this. This is wonderful. And Chuck goes, my goodness. The last state is definitely worse than the first. You've all had friends that have rejected Christ. And you go back and look at their lives now. And you think, oh my goodness, if only, if only they would have received Christ. Now Matthew's account, am I ready for that? Yeah. Matthew's account is um, the exact same words, except Matthew's going to take us one phrase further, which I wanted you to see. So the exact same words. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a man, he walketh through dry places, seeking rest and finds none. Then he saith, I will return into my house from whence I came out. And when he has come, he findeth it empty, swept and garnished, Oh, what did I do now? Let's try that. Am I back? I think I am. 16 of 70, I'm back. <laughs> well, I don't know what I did, but I did it. Then goeth he and taketh with him seven other spirits more wicked than himself. And they enter in and dwell there. And the last state of that man is worse than the first. Now you get the picture, don't you? You can make a decision not to trust Christ, but it won't turn out well in the end. That's the point. You can say, I don't need the stronger man in my life. I can do it myself. That's okay. God will let you. But your last state will be much worse than the first. But then Matthew, now, you know, uh, we, we kind of suspect that Luke was writing the beginning, this is the beginning of the trial documents for Paul's trial in front of Nero, the emperor. Luke and Acts being combined together as the pre-trial information that had to be mailed in so that the emperor could 
His, his minions could read it and know the background. But in Matthew's case, so, so I mean, if you were Luke and you were writing this and you wanted Nero to read it, or actually his, one of his secretaries to read it, you really wouldn't want to say that the last state is worse than the first because the last state of Israel right now in history, in Luke's day, was occupation by Rome. That wouldn't exactly win friends and influence people for Paul's case, you see. So whether Luke never heard this phrase or deliberately left it off, the, 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 if, if you read the book of Luke and the book of Acts, you will notice a couple of things. Nothing negative is ever said about a Roman soldier. Uh, they all, the centurions always come out as the good guys and the, the religious Jews as the bad guys. Uh, so there's a reason for that, and that's possibly because it was a trial document. I'm not saying it wasn't the truth. I'm just saying he didn't tell it all. You know, and sometimes you don't look at your friend and say, yeah, and you're going to hell too. I mean, you just don't tell them the whole truth. Sometimes you don't want them to have that. But when Matthew closed this phrase, Matthew was present at the time. In this short phrase, even so, now okay, your last state is worse than the first. You reject the Messiah. You attribute his energies and power to Satan. You refuse him permission into your country. You don't let Jesus into your country. And your last state will be worse than your first. And you realize who said this. This is the judge of all the earth that said this. And he said it to his people, the Jews. And now you pick up a history book and look what happened to Israel in the last 2,000 years. And you will know without doubt that their last state was worse than their first. But there's a clear warning here, even for the United States of America and any country. Go to Europe back when they started kicking Jesus out. Do you know in Ireland, in Ireland right now, they are kicking the Christian missionaries out of Ireland? Now the Catholics can stay and some cults can stay. But if you're a Christian missionary and you want to renew your visa as a missionary, they won't renew it. We don't want you here. Their last state will be much worse than their first. There's areas of Europe where you cannot hand out a tract without going to jail. There's places in Canada where you can't speak the words of the Bible, the whole Bible, without going to jail. Depends on what words you pick. And it's coming there here now. There's certain things you can say, and it's getting to where there's some things I can't say. Because if I say them, I'm violating some rule that they've made. But understand there's a clear warning here, the danger of our life without Jesus, and we're seeing it. All this evil. You know, we, we who were teenagers in the 60s all said we don't need these constraints on us. We can do our own things. And we got ourselves up, tied up with seven of the worst demons you could ever imagine. And we invited them in after we kicked Jesus out in the 50s. We can clean up our house and we can live a good life in our own estimation and we can be religious and hardworking people. But if we kick out Jesus, the strong man, we're defenseless. We're defenseless against all matter of evil. Let's pray. Father, it's my hope that everybody within the sound of my voice today has received Jesus as their Savior. That they've bowed their heart that they bowed their heads and they said, Father, 
I understand I'm a sinner and I need a Savior. And I pray, Father, that they've invited Jesus to come into their life. Please, Lord Jesus, come into my life and save me. And Father, I'll pray that they'll pray this prayer in Jesus' name and be gloriously and spectacularly saved. I thank you, Lord, for this time together and this opportunity to speak to your people, your sheep, children of your household. In Jesus' name, amen.